Hi, it's Chris Flanagan here and welcome to Paediatric Emergencies. So apologies it's been so long since the last podcast, um, but I've had my hands full with a few things. But anyway, we're back now and in this episode I'm going to cover bronchiolitis. Um, and it's very timely at the moment because um, certainly in Northern Ireland the bronchiolitis season is starting to kick off. And over the last week or so we had a few babies admitted to the unit. Um, so as bronchiolitis is very specific to children, um, it's not like the other conditions that I've dealt with um, where there's a few paediatric specific um, parts to it, but it's actually a condition that can affect adults as well. Bronchiolitis only occurs in children less than two years of age um, by definition and is mostly in kids less than a year of age. So I want to spend a little bit more time at the start um, going through what bronchiolitis actually is um, and how it's managed. So um, bronchiolitis is a viral infection of the lower airways, although it often starts as uh, an upper respiratory tract infection before working its way down to the lower airways. Um, and as I've mentioned, it's uh, most common in infants, but can affect children up to two years of age. Um, the most common affecting organism is respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, although pretty much any respiratory virus can cause a bronchiolitis-type picture. Um, and it's important that you know which viruses are causing it so that you can cohort the children in either the ward or the intensive care unit. And it tends to have um, its peak around about the autumn winter time. So affected children tend to present with uh, carousal symptoms, a moist cough and reduced feeding um, together with a low grade pyrexia, normally less than 39 degrees C. Um, when you listen into them, they um, have fine scattered crackles and wheeze throughout their chest and uh, varying degrees of respiratory distress. So how do we manage these kids? Well, like any other viral illness, there's very little that we can do to make it go away. Um, and it's mainly supporting the children until they naturally get better from the illness. Um, so the natural history of bronchiolitis is the kids tend to have um, tend to get worse over the first few days um, with their peak of their illness around about uh, three days after the onset of coughing and respiratory distress um, before slowly getting better. Um, and it's tend to be improving by around about day five or seven of the illness. Um, the cough itself can tend to go on for a few weeks after this, um, but in general the kids are not systemically unwell. So for children with mild bronchiolitis, really all you need to do is keep the nasal passages clear, um, and that's done through a combination of either suction or um, saline nasal drops, and by feeding them small amounts regularly to maintain their hydration. If the kids aren't managing with that, um, one of the treatments that does have some evidence in bronchiolitis is uh, 3% hypertonic saline um, given via a nebulizer. And how this works, it improves the airway narrowing by reducing the mucosal edema and also helping clear the secretions as a mucolytic. It's also important to maintain hydration and when the children um, aren't able to feed by themselves. Um, generally, the preferred method of feeding is via a nasogastric tube, and when this isn't possible, intravenous fluids. 
There's new evidence that um, corticosteroids or bronchodilators, such as salbutamol or ipotropium, help in bronchiolitis. Um, and that's because the, the wheeze that you hear isn't caused by bronchospasm, as you get in asthma. It's caused by narrowing of the airways through a combination of um, airway wall edema or secretions that are narrowing the airway and causing the wheeze. So if it's not uh, bronchoconstriction that's the problem, you'd, um, it goes that uh, subutyl nipotropium won't help in this condition. Um, however, in children above six months of age, there may be some diagnostic uncertainty. And actually some children who may have an asthma type picture may be labelled as bronchiolitis. Um, and they actually may benefit from some bronchodilators. So in kids generally over six months, it is worth giving them a trial of bronchodilators. If they make an improvement, keep going with them. And if they don't, don't give them again. From an antibiotic point of view, um, there's no evidence that antibiotics help in bronchiolitis, and that makes sense as it's a, a viral infection. However, it is possible that you can get secondary bacterial infection. Um, and where that would come in or make you think of that is if you're having temperatures above 39 degrees or if the illness isn't following its natural course, getting worse for the first three days, peaking and then getting better. If you have a child who starts to get better and then gets worse again and has developed some new x-ray changes, that would make you suspicious of a bacterial infection and antibiotics may well be appropriate at that stage. So when the kids aren't managing with that, um, the other thing that's often added in is some nebulized adrenaline. Um, and again, adrenaline works by reducing the mucosal wall edema and therefore the airway narrowing. Um, there's, unlike the hypertonic saline, um, there's limited evidence that it improves outcome in bronchiolitis. Um, there is some evidence showing that it reduces admission to hospital, but it doesn't improve the outcome overall. Um, however, I think if you have a sick bronchiolitis, um, it's useful to give it. And I personally have used um, nebulized adrenaline to avoid intubation on a number of occasions. Okay, so while most of the babies will respond to this treatment, um, there's some babies who don't. And the babies that don't, um, who have severe bronchiolitis, um, come to the attention of intensive care staff um, for two main reasons. And they are respiratory failure or apneas. Um, and there's a treatment that tends to help with both of those, and that's the provision of non-invasive respiratory support. So that obviously provides support in respiratory failure and also stimulates the babies to breathe, um, also helping with the apneas. Um, there's two main forms that that can be done. Um, sort of traditionally it was CPAP, um, and if you start in CPAP um, nasally, I would tend to start with around about 68 centimetres of water. Um, and the newer sort of treatment is high flow oxygen. And again, starting that um, around about two litres per kilo of uh, flow and titrating the FiO2 um, to what the baby needs. So um, District General Hospitals vary on their ability to provide this treatment. Um, if this is something that you have the ability to deliver, um, it can be very helpful in preventing intensive care admission. Um, so it's worth a trial if the baby's deteriorating with um, standard treatment. Um, 
also important that you don't keep going with this too long um, and then um, create a very unstable intubation. So I think if you're starting these kids on um, non-invasive respiratory support, it's worth discussing them with the retrieval team. So the other treatment that I want to discuss um, primarily for apnea is caffeine citrate. So unlike apnea prematurity, where there is good evidence that um, caffeine citrate works, um, there's limited evidence that it does work for treating apneas um, secondary to bronchiolitis. However, as it's generally well tolerated and has a low side effect profile, it's probably worth giving a go in babies having recurrent apneas in certain circumstances. So I would consider caffeine in a baby with a limited respiratory stress who is just having apneas. Um, however, I probably wouldn't use it in a baby who is already escalated to CPAP, needing high FiO2, and is having apneas because they're exhausted. So I think it's picking the right child um, and making sure you're in a unit that can manage the apneas um, should they occur. Okay, so now I want to go on and discuss a case um, to try and highlight a few of the management points um, and go on to the intensive care. So we've got a four-month-old male infant who was admitted to the paediatric ward earlier that day um, with confirmed RSV bronchiolitis. He's been unwell now for about 48 hours um, with cough, carousal and reduced feeding. He had attended the emergency department the day before um, diagnosed as bronchiolitis and had a nasopharyngeal aspirate uh, performed, which has come back positive with RSV. Um, he developed respiratory distress this morning, and this has increased throughout the day, um, despite suctioning, hypertonic saline, and adrenaline nebulizers. So looking at this baby, um, his respiratory distress really only started today. Um, so looking at the natural course of bronchiolitis, he's going to get worse before he gets better. So that's important to help you decide your, your ongoing management. Um, going into his past medical history, he was a full term, normal delivery, no neonatal problems. He's had all his vaccinations and has normal development. He's not on any regular medications and doesn't have any allergies. There's nothing of note in his family history. And when his social history is explored, the only thing of note is that his four-year-old brother is also carousal. So you go on to do um, an A, B, C, D assessment of him. So looking at his airway, he's snuffly, um, but maintaining his airway by himself. Looking at the breathing, he has peripheral oxygen saturations of 93% in 60% humidified head box oxygen. He's very tachypneic, 85 breaths per minute, with severe respiratory distress, he's got subcostal, intercostal, and sternal recession. When you listen into the chest, it's a very typical bronchiolitics chest um, with scattered wheeze and fine crackles right throughout. Going on to the circulation, he's warm and well perfused with a cap refill time of less than two seconds. He is a little tachycardic at 179 beats per minute, and this is showing up as a sinus tachycardia on the monitor. Blood pressure is acceptable at 92 over 48, and he has one peripheral uh, cannula in situ. Um, going on to disability, he's alert, pupils are equal and reactive to light, and blood sugar 
millimoles per litre. Um, looking at him from an exposure point of view, his temperature is 37.9 degrees, so low grade temperature, as you'd expect with bronchiolitis. He doesn't have any rashes, and his abdominal exam is unremarkable. So at, at this stage, from an initial management point of view, um, it's felt that he would benefit from um, some non-invasive respiratory support. So he started on high flow oxygen, um, 2 litres per kilo. So as he's 6 kilos, that's 12 litres of flow in total. He has a chest x-ray performed um, to exclude a pneumothorax. And his chest x-ray just is very typical of bronchiolitis. Hyperinflated lung fields, bronchial wall thick thickening, and uh, no focal consolidation. Um, as he's felt to have severe bronchiolitis and at high risk of needing intubation, um, his nasogastric feeds are stopped and he started on um, intravenous fluids restricted to 80% of maintenance. He also has a capillary blood gas performed, um, which shows a mixed acidosis, a mixed metabolic and respiratory acidosis. So he has a pH of 7.26, PCO2 of 8.7 kilopascals, base excess of minus 2.7, and a lactate of 3.4 millimoles per litre. So when you do any intervention, um, it's important you go back and reassess is it effective. And if you're starting these babies on non-invasive respiratory support, it's important you do this very quickly. If it's going to work, it's going to work within the first hour or so. And if it doesn't at this stage, you should go on ahead and intubate these children. Um, it's important you don't just keep turning things up and then making the intubation really unstable where you've got nowhere to go and no safety margin. So you go on and reassess half an hour after starting the high flow. At this stage, the airway is still patent. He's got peripheral oxygen saturations of 91% and 12 litres of high flow, so deteriorated slightly. But he, he's actually needing more oxygen. He's in 80% oxygen. He's still tachymneic at 88 breaths per minute, and there hasn't made any difference to his degree of respiratory distress. Still warm and well perfused, a little bit more tachycardic at 185 beats per minute. And actually now he's only responding to voice, so there's some concerns that he's getting a little tired. So at this stage, a decision is made to intubate and ventilate him. What I will say here is important that the decision to intubate and ventilate him is made now, but the plans to intubate and ventilate him should have been made at the time you're starting him in high flow. Um, so at that stage, you're getting the people involved that you need to do this. You're drawing up drugs, emergency medications. So you're really having a plan B in place should your plan A fail. So that you're not just starting with plan B when plan A fails and then there's a delay in uh, instigating it. And this is really important. Okay, so I'm gonna go on and talk about how you're gonna manage this child from now on and, and cover the intensive care aspects of this. And I'm gonna start with the airway. So firstly, I wanna cover the indications for intubation and ventilation. Um, and as I've already kind of mentioned, you want to intubate these children at the right time. And if you're not able to maintain their oxygen saturations above 92 and 60% supplemental oxygen, you should be intubating them. 
what you do want to do is put them on non-invasive respiratory support, keep turning the oxygen up and up, and get yourself in a situation where you have no leeway and the child will significantly decompensate on intubation. You want to do this safely at the right time. Um, obviously, if you have respiratory failure refractory to high flow oxygen or nasal CPAP, or you don't have the ability to provide these services locally, um, that would be another indication for intubating these kids. Um, the other option you may have is the um, retrieval team may be able to come out, put these kids on CPAP or high flow oxygen, um, observe them for a period of time. If it makes a difference, they may be happy to move them on this. Um, but if you don't feel you're going to be able to um, maintain the child safely until the team come out to do this, you should get on ahead and intubate and ventilate them. Um, other indications would be um, reduced level of consciousness, um, exhaustion, or if you're having recurrent apneas. It's also important to mention that there are certain children you're probably going to want to intervene earlier on. Um, and these sort of high-risk patients include uh, patients with congenital heart disease, um, neuromuscular disorders, immunodeficiency, or ex-premature infants with uh, chronic lung disease. Um, and these kids are likely to deteriorate, so you may as well get on and intervene early. Okay, so how are we going to manage this child who's already on um, high-flow oxygen, but deteriorating, and obviously needs intubation and ventilation? Well, the first thing that you should do is probably clear the nasal passages out, um, using a flexible suction catheter um, and then you should deliver PEEP via an Irish tea piece and face mask um, while plans for intubation are made. And this is often the first thing I'll do when I'm called to a ward to see a child and they have um, severe respiratory distress. Even before I've got the handover, I'll quite often go put a face mask on, maintain the airway and provide them a little bit of PEEP while I'm taking the handover. And this is often enough just to provide that period of stability while plans for intubation and ventilation are made. Um, as goes without saying, you should pre-oxygenate these kids. And if you use the above sort of technique with the Irish piece and face mask, you'll be doing that. Um, you probably should give a little bit of fluid, 10 mils per kilo of normal saline prior to induction. Um, and as we mentioned in the, the asthma talk, what you're doing, you're switching from negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation, which is going to impair the venous return to the heart and reduce the preload. Um, you've already got a child who probably hasn't been feeding well, is a little bit dehydrated. So it makes sense to give them a little bit of fluid prior to inducing anesthesia. Another important point is that when you induce anesthesia, it tends to be about the time these kids decompensate and you're going to want to know about it. So have your blood pressure cuff cycling every minute, have additional fluid boluses and resuscitation drugs drawn up and prepared, and it's useful to have some push dose pressors, um, I use push dose adrenaline, um, for every intubation in a critically ill child. Going on to your choice of induction agents and muscle relaxants, I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record, I'm going to say use ketamine. Um, there's almost no situation where I won't use ketamine in a sick child it's the most stable drug to use um, and these kids are dosed between one and two milligrams per kilogram depending on how clamped out the child is um, and from a muscle relaxing point of view you've got a, a sick neonate 
who is going to likely bradycardia when you um, stick a laryngoscope down the back of their throat. So for me, um, avoiding succinothodium makes perfect sense and I'd much rather use a dose of rocuronium, um, a milligram per kilogram as an RSI dose. Yeah, it's going to take me an extra 10 seconds before I can intubate this child, but it's going to give me much more stable intubating conditions than uh, succinothodium. Um, it's important that you have some prophylactic atropine um, either given or um, drawn up to give in the case of instability um, on induction. Um, I don't routinely give all my kids prophylactic atropine, but if it's a really clapped out child, um, then I probably will because I want the induction to go um, as stably as possible. Another really important point um, for these small children is that you can't do a classical RSI um, where you give your induction agent muscle relaxant and then you don't bag them during the apnea period while the muscle relaxant takes effect. If you do, this, this child's saturations will be in the 30s by the time you finish the apnea period. So you're going to have to do a modified rapid sequence where you bag these kids gently during that apnea period. And even with that and slick intubation, um, these neonates will frequently desaturate during the, the intubation attempts, even if it's slick in its first pass. Um, so while you're bagging these kids gently um, with mask ventilation, um, as well as filling the lungs up, you'll also be filling up the stomach. And as the stomach fills up, it's going to split the diaphragm and impair your ventilation. So before you start doing this, it's really important you have a nasogastric tube in situ and you task one member of staff to aspirate that at the start, but also to continually aspirate that while you do face mask ventilation to prevent that stomach filling up and splitting the diaphragm. Okay, so going on to um, whether you should use a straight blade or a curved blade to intubate these children. Um, probably in most kids under six months of age, you're going to get a much better view with a straight blade than you will with a curved blade. And that's because of what the blades are designed to do. The straight blade is designed to lift the epiglottis out of the way. Um, the curved blade is designed to go into the vallecula behind the epiglottis. And when you pull there, um, the epiglottis will move out of the way. The problem in small infants is the, the glossoepiglottic ligament, um, which connects the base of the tongue to the epiglottis, is quite lax. So that pressure applied with the tip of a curved blade in the vallecula doesn't lift the epiglottis out of the way to the same degree in an infant as it will do in an adult. So the view that you obtain will be inferior than if you had used a straight blade to um, lift the epiglottis directly out of the way. Um, so I would probably use a straight blade up until at least six months of age and from six months on consider using a curved blade. So what size of blade should you use? This is a, another common thing that um, people who are not used to intubating small babies use a blade that's too small. And I've certainly seen this recently when I went out to a child and they told me it was actually quite a difficult intubation. Um, this was a four kilo baby and it turned out they were using a Miller 00, which you would normally use to intubate a baby less than a kilo. So of course it's going to be a difficult intubation. Um, and that's just from using the inappropriate equipment. So what I will say is you can always intubate with a blade that's too big, but you, you'll struggle to intubate if you use a blade that's too small.
So I would recommend either using a Miller 1 or a Mac 2 and you should be able to intubate any baby with bronchiolitis using either of one of those two blades. So going on to the endotracheal tube size, um, I suppose the first thing to say is whether you should be using a cuffed or uncuffed tube. And what I'll do is I'll put a separate talk out on that in the next few weeks. Um, I have a talk, I just need to put the audio to it. Um, it depends on the type of endotracheal tube that you have, and actually there's only one um, endotracheal tube um, that's specifically designed for the paediatric airways. Um, so if you're going to use a cuff tube, um, and I probably would in these children, um, you would use a size 3 cuff tubes for um, infants greater than 3 kilos up until 8 months of age, and a 3.5 cuff tube um, for children between 8 months and under 2 years. If you're going to use an uncuffed tube, generally a size 3 um, for babies less than 2.5 kilos. A size 3.5 is about right between 2.5 to 5 kilos. A size 4 tube between 5 and 10 kilos. And for uh, babies with bronchitis over 10 kilos, a 4.5 um, uncuffed tube should be about right. Um, it's also important to know how far you should um, put the tube in. Um, so um, for neonates, there's a useful formula where you just add their weight to 6 to give you the distance of insertion for an oral tube, and you add their weight to 7 for distance of insertion with a nasal tube. So for a 3 kilo neonate, it would be 9 centimetres at the lips or 10 centimetres at the nose. Um, for older infants, the formula is a little bit more complicated. For an oral tube, you take their weight in kilos, divide it by 2, and add 8 to it. And for a nasal tube, their weight in kilos, divided by 2, and add 9. So I have all these formulas in the Paediatric Emergencies app, so that will take the, the thinking out of that for you. And again, the, the tube sizing is in there as well. So just another couple of useful points to mention during the intubation. So it's useful just to keep the head in the neutral position. Um, if you're using a straight blade, obviously go in and lift the epiglottis. Um, if you're using a curved blade, go into the vallecula and lift. Um, if you're not used to using a straight blade and you're struggling to lift the epiglottis, you can also just go into the vallecula with the straight blade. Um, and most of the time you're able to get a reasonable view. If you don't have a view that will allow you to intubate the child at this stage, um, normally a bit of external laryngeal manipulation um, will turn that view into one that will allow you to intubate the child. And this is a really important point, um, particularly in those small infants um, where external laryngeal manipulation, with the, whereby the intubator uses their free hand to manipulate the larynx into a position that improves the view and then gets the insistent to take over that pressure while they pass the tube um, can significantly improve the view and um, particularly if you don't with that straight but if you don't quite have the epiglottis lifted and you're in the vallecula and you've got a grade 2 view it's very easy to turn that into a grade 1 view just by a little bit of external laryngeal manipulation. Okay so I want to go on and talk about the breathing now. And the next point I want to make is probably one of the most important points in this podcast. So you've just intubated this child. Their chest is absolutely full of secretions. You've now got a passage down into the lungs. You've got a way of getting those secretions out. So the first thing you should do after you've intubated the child and secured the tube is actually some suction down that tube and try and clear those secretions out. 
Um, quite often what I'll do once I've cleared the tube is I'll do um, initially some suctioning, put some saline down the tube, do some saline bagging and a little bit of chest physio prior to putting the child on the ventilator. Um, and it just makes sense to do this rather than putting that child straight onto the ventilator with their chest full of secretions. But this is quite commonly what happens to these children that people don't think about doing this or understand the importance of doing this. So like I say, this is one of the most important points. Immediately after intubating this child and securing the tube, suction the tube and clear the secretions from the chest. Going on to setting up the ventilator, it's pretty much standard settings like I've described before. So I would use an ITE ratio of one to two. Um, from a peak point of view, um, most of these kids start in about five or six centimeters of water. Um, if the chest x-ray shows significant collapse consolidation, and I'm trying to open that up, probably starting about eight centimeters of water. Um, if then the child is needing significant amounts of oxygen to maintain saturations, um, then I would titrate the PEEP up um, in relation to that. So if they're on six, going to eight, if they're on eight, going to 10. Um, and just titrating that to the, the oxygen that they need. Um, from a respiratory rate point of view, somewhere around about 25 to 30 um, is about right with an eye time of 0.6 to 0.8 seconds. Um, and quite all commonly, we'll go out to these children. They're being ventilated at 45, 50, 60 breaths a minute with short eye times, and they're not clearing CO2. We'll go out and put a, a decent eye time um, and reduce the respiratory rate and the clear CO2 much better. Um, so setting the ventilator upright uh, is pretty important. From a peak pressure point of view, we're starting around about 20 centimetres of water, or 68 mils per kilo. Um, tidal volume is probably about right. And then adjust that depending on the chest movement um, and blood gases that you're getting. So I've already mentioned that probably the most common mistake I see um, when I go out to these children is not sucking them out immediately after um, intubation and where people put them straight onto the ventilator. The other common mistake that I'll see is using a ventilator or circuit that's inappropriate for the size of the infant that you have on it. So the, the circuit basically has too much dead space in it. So when you're using the low tidal volumes that you need uh, in these small babies, all you're really doing is ventilating the circuit and the patient actually receives very little of the, the ventilation. So it's not surprising you get resistant hypercapnia in this situation. So how can you prevent this? Um, I think firstly, um, by a bit of advanced planning, go in and checking that so the ventilator in the circuit that you're going to put one of these kids on um, is appropriate prior to it happening. Um, and should you then struggle to ventilate a child with bronchiolitis, then the first thing I'm going to go through a dose assessment of how you manage a child deteriorating on the ventilator a little bit later on. But you take the child off the the ventilator and see does the hypercapnia improve and bag them. And if it does, then it's the, the ventilator that's causing it and not the patient. Likewise, even if you have the child on an appropriate ventilator and circuit, adding excessive dead space into the circuit can cause similar problems. So large filters, um, inappropriate sized um, capnography or um, excessive angle pieces will all increase the dead space um, and increase the risk of hypercapnia in small infants. 
So it's important that you know if you're struggling, that's something else you look at and see can you remove as much from the circuit as possible. So like any ventilated child, it's important you have continuous monitoring of pulse oximetry and capnography and are keeping an eye on the blood gases regularly. Um, and for most instances, capillary blood gases are going to be appropriate. There's very close correlation between um, the PaCO2 and the capillary um, CO2. Um, and it's rare that we actually need a PaO2 on these children. Um, from a point of view of targeting um, oxygen saturations, um, if you're using sort of minimal oxygen, less than 60%, um, targeting sats about 92% is reasonable. Um, once we're getting more than 60% oxygen, um, we start to worry about the toxic effects of oxygen on the lungs. So to try and limit that, um, it's probably worth relaxing your oxygen saturation targets down to about 88%. And you can keep an eye on the, the lactate as a marker that you're delivering enough oxygen to the tissues with these saturations. Um, from a pressure point of view, we tend to like to keep the peak pressures uh, less than 25 centimetres of water. Um, and if we're sort of approaching those sort of numbers, um, we'll try and relax the blood gas targets to maintain a pH greater than 7.25. Um, if your sort of pressure's in the low 20s, then it's reasonable to target a, a pH of 7.35. Other things from a ventilation point of view, if you are struggling um, and you've got a child who's greater than six months of age, you might want to consider a trial of bronchodilators. Um, is this an asthma rather than a, a bronchiolitis? Um, again, like any ventilated child, you should have a chest x-ray to confirm their endotracheal tube position. And your typical chest x-ray findings in bronchiolitis are hyperinflation and bronchial wall thickening. Okay, so moving on to the circulation, um, from an access point of view, um, for transferring any child, they're going to need two peripheral cannula in situ. However, for most kids with bronchiolitis, you don't need an arterial line or a central line. And these should generally only be inserted if access is difficult or the child is hemodynamically unstable. Um, it is important that you continuously monitor the ECG and that you have the non-invasive blood pressure cycling every five minutes in the absence of an arterial line. Going on to disability, um, from a sedation point of view, um, morphine works well um, for most of these babies. Um, and I would tend to start around about 20 mics per kilo per hour of morphine, with a range of 10 to 60 um, mics per kilo per hour. I try to avoid midazolam, um, particularly in babies less than three months of age, um, where I can, because I tend to find that it accumulates um, if it's given for a, a period of days. Um, however, if you need to add it in, that's fine. Um, starting somewhere between one to four mics per kilo per minute, obviously using the low dose as possible. Um, for transfer, um, it's probably worth keeping these babies um, muscle relaxed, using whatever choice of non-depolarizing uh, muscle relaxant you want to. Um, if you do have a child with possible asthma, obviously avoiding that trachurium um, due to its histamine release. It's important you also keep an eye on the blood sugars regularly um, and assess the pupillary reflexes regularly as well. Going on to sepsis, when you do that initial um, suction down the endotracheal tube, if you can, try and keep some of those secretions and send them off for bacteriology and virology. 
um, assuming you don't already have any um, virology sent uh, on that child previously. Whenever the child gets to PICU, um, we'll quite often do a blind um, bronchoalveolar lavage to try and obtain secretions, which will help us decide about antibiotics and if antibiotics have been started, about whether we can stop them or not safely. Um, if the chest x-ray does show signs of consolidation or if the history is slightly out of keeping with bronchiolitis, uh, like we mentioned earlier, there's some atypical features that may th make you think of a secondary bacterial infection. It's probably reasonable to add in some antibiotics until you get the results of those secretions or BIL back again. Um, and for community-acquired sepsis, um, comoxiclav um, would be reasonable. Or if you think this is a hospital-acquired um, pneumonia, I would tend to use Tazacin uh, in this scenario. The other thing to think about is pertussis in these babies. So if, there, for example, there's spasms of coughing and there's lymphocytosis, then it would be reasonable to check for pertussis, but also cover the baby with intravenous uh, clarithromycin, 7.5 milligrams per kilogram, um, while you're waiting the results of that test. And it goes without saying, if you have any concerns of sepsis, for example, temperatures above 39, hemodynamic instability, that you should cover the child as if they're septic. And you can see the sepsis talk for advice and antibiotics there. Going on to the renal system, um, these children should all receive restricted intravenous fluids um, and whatever restriction you use should depend on your local policy which tends to vary from two-thirds of maintenance to 80% of maintenance. Um, and the reason for that is that all these children have um, are at risk of syndrome of inappropriate IDH. So going back in the past, whenever you injured yourself or were unwell and weren't able to drink, um, your body responded by releasing IDH, so you hung on to fluid. Um, at that time, that was a completely appropriate response. Now we've got intravenous cannula and fluids. It's called an inappropriate response because we don't need that anymore. Um, so these children, they don't need 100% of maintenance. Um, as well as this, you've, you've got a endotracheal tube in, you're warming and humidifying the gases. So their insensible losses are much less. So all children really um, should be restricted. So um, what fluid should you use? Um, like I mentioned, all these kids are at risk of SIDH and free water retention, so you should use isotonic fluids as the risk of hyponatremia. So your fluids should initially start with um, normal saline, um, combined with either 5 or 10% dextrose. I would probably use 10% dextrose in neonates, and once you're probably over that month age, start with 5% dextrose, and keep an eye on the blood sugars, and adjust the dextrose concentration depending on the trend in blood sugars. Um, and you should obviously add in some potassium as and when it's required um, and your initial blood gas will help you decide um, how much potassium to add to the bag. Um, important to say as well, you don't normally need to catheterise these children. Um, they'll often pass urine without any difficulty and a catheterisation should be reserved for um, urinary retention. So every intervention you do to these children um, is associated with risk of harm. So, for example, central line insertion is associated with risk of infection and clots. Arterial line insertion with risk of uh, ischemic injury to the limb. And urinary catheterization associated with the risk of trauma and infection. 
So you should really be thinking before you stick any liner tube into these children, do I have a good reason for doing it? And only proceed if you do. Okay, going on to the gastrointestinal system, you should already have your nasogastric tube in situ. Um, as I've mentioned, it's important during the induction, but it's also important that you make sure you've aspirated all or from it, which is this will splint the diaphragm, um, and then leave it on free drainage. Looking at the labs and electrolytes, um, routine bloods, um, full blood picture is important, particularly if you're worried about um, pertussis, um, looking to see is there lymphocytosis. Um, UNE from an hydration point of view, CRP is a septic marker, and like any sick child, they should have a blood gas and a lactate um, taken. Um, it's important if you're going to start antibiotics that you send blood cultures um, where possible before starting the antibiotics, provided it doesn't result in a, a significant delay in the antibiotic administration. And you should also send secretions off for bacteriology and virology, as we've mentioned. Okay, so I want to go on and cover a few of the drugs that we're using now in a little bit more detail. Um, so the hypertonic saline nebulizers um, is the first thing that I want to... So the first drug I want to look at is hypertonic saline, 3%. So hypertonic saline, as I already mentioned, has two main functions in bronchiolitis. It acts as a mucolytic um, by loosening up thick, sticky secretions which are blocking the airway and helping you mobilise them. The other thing it does is helps reduce mucosal edema, which causes narrowing of the airways and obstruction to flow. Um, one of the problems with uh, administering hypertonic saline is that it can temporarily irritate the airways and cause bronchospasm. And it's been shown that if you administer it along with a bronchodilator, um, it can help prevent this. So in somebody less than six months of age, um, giving it along with a little bit of adrenaline, somebody over six months of age, you could give it with some subutamol. Um, the dose tends to be around about four mils of the 3% hypertonic saline, regardless of age and weight. And that's given via an oxygen-driven nebulizer. And that dose can be repeated every 68 hours as required. Looking at the adrenaline nebulizer, um, it also works by reducing mucosal edema um, and um, therefore um, reducing any restriction to airway flu. Um, it also, if there is any bronchospasm, it does have beta effects in the airways, so it will help um, treat this. And actually, prior to subutamol, adrenaline was used to treat asthma. So if you do have a child that may have some asthmatic features, um, it's also going to help with this as well. Um, the dose that we tend to use in bronchiolitis is 2 milligrams um, per dose, um, which works out as 2 mils of adrenaline, um, 1 in a 1,000. Um, and you can either add that um, directly into the 4 mils of hypertonic saline, um, or if you're going to use it on its own, um, what I'd recommend is diluting it in an equal volume of 0.9% saline. So take 2 mils of 0.9% saline, 2 mils of adrenaline, 1 in 1,000, and give them together in a nebulizer. Um, and the third drug I want to mention, as we discussed it earlier on, as a treatment for apnea is related to bronchiolitis is caffeine citrate. Um, so if you're going to do this, um, and like I've said, I would probably reserve it for um, isolated apneas. Um, if you're having apneas associated with respiratory exhaustion, 
the Chinese intubated. But it's those babies who just have an apneas, but in between times are reasonable from a respiratory point of view. It's probably worth giving this a trial, um, providing you're, some, you're in a safe place that the apneas can be managed when they occur. Um, it's also important to mention that caffeine um, should be always prescribed as caffeine citrate. Um, because two milligrams of caffeine citrate is equivalent to one milligram of caffeine base. Uh, and this is a source of error, obviously, if there's um, prescribed in two different ways. So um, typically you would give a loading dose of caffeine citrus, 20 milligrams per kilogram, by intravenous infusion over about 30 minutes. And if that's effective, you can then start maintenance caffeine uh, 24 hours later on. So finally, I want to deal a little bit with refractory bronchiolitis. Um, so what do you do? You've intubated this child, you've put them on a ventilator, but you're still struggling to oxygenate or ventilate them. So what should you do? Well, I think there's two things that you should do um, simultaneously. The first thing you should do with any child deteriorating on the ventilator is a dose assessment, which I'm gonna cover here in a little bit of detail how you go about doing that. And the other important thing is you should discuss the child urgently with the retrieval team. We can only help you if we know you're having problems. Um, so if you don't let the retrieval team know, we can't provide any advice. And often a lot of these problems are things that we see time and time again. Um, for example, putting the child on an adult circuit um, and the simple thing of just taking them off the, the ventilator will fix the problem. Okay, so for a dose assessment, so what does dose stand for? Um, it helps you just remember the things you need to look at when you've got a child um, deteriorating on the ventilator. So D stands for displaced endotracheal tube. O for obstructed endotracheal tube. P for pneumothorax. E for equipment failure. And S for stacked breaths or stomach. And that's the stomach splinting the diaphragm. Um, so I'm going to go through how you would look at each of these in a bit of detail. So for a displaced endotracheal tube, so the endotracheal tube can either be displaced out of the trachea, so it's now either in the pharynx or into the esophagus. So how would, how would you pick that up? Well, there'd be an obvious leak when you go to the patient. Your end tidal CO2 wouldn't be reading, um, or when you bag the patient, there's, there's nowhere entry. Um, other places that it can go, and it's a bit harder to detect, is that the tube actually um, migrates inwards, um, so it's either into the right main bronchus or up against the carina. And that can cause you just as much problem. So it'd be important as well as that you have a look and see where is the tube at the lips. Has it moved in or moved out um, You know from where you originally secured it? And that's going to help you pick up that problem. If you haven't x-rayed it already, you should get an urgent chest x-ray to confirm the position of that tube. Looking at an obstructive tube, how, how are you going to detect that? I think, can I get a suction catheter down the tube? What does it feel like to bag the patient? Is it, is it really stiff to get that air in? And, and there's a prolonged expiration as that air struggles to get out of the chest. Have I got a CO2 trace? A completely blocked tube. You won't have a CO2 trace. Um, looking at a pneumothorax, um, the quickest and easiest way to pick up a pneumothorax is to pop an ultrasound probe on the chest. If you've got pleural sliding over the most anterior part of the chest, um, there's no pneumothorax. Um, and what I'll do, I'll link to a video in the show notes which shows you how to do that. 
Barring the equipment and the skills to do that, um, the easiest way is just to do a chest x-ray, which you probably should be doing anyway to look at other things and any child that's deteriorating on a ventilator. From an equipment failure point of view, take the patient off the ventilator, bag them, and that way you've ruled out a problem with the ventilator. Looking at stack breaths, um, I cover that a little bit in the asthma talk, and that tends to occur in a patient where you've got um, bronchospasm um, and prolonged expiration. So the patient needs a long expiratory time to get out of the chest. The ventilator hasn't been set up to allow for that, so before the patient has finished expiring, another breath comes along. So as time goes on, more and more air is trapped in the lungs and you get a reduced venous return to the heart um, in a situation similar to what you would get with a tension pneumothorax. Um, so the treatment for that is just taking the patient off the ventilator um, and leaving them with the endotracheal tube. With stacked breaths, you hear a big hiss from the endotracheal tube and the, the problem will resolve quite quickly. Um, the other thing we've already mentioned a little bit round about the induction period is that a full stomach can splint the diaphragm, so aspirate the nasogastric tube as part of your dopes assessment. One of the things not in the dopes assessment um, that's also important to look at when a kid's deteriorating on the ventilator is, is the patient fighting the ventilator. Um, even if they're not fighting it, um, having their own sort of muscular tone can sometimes interfere with the ventilator doing its work. So one of the first things I will do is take the patient out of the problem as well by giving him a bolus of sedation and of muscle relaxant. Okay, so the whole dopes assessment really should only take you a couple of minutes to do. Um, so how, how do I do it practically? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take the patient off the ventilator. Um, I'm going to see, do they have stack breaths? When I listen at the end of the endotracheal tube, with a disconnected, if there's a big hiss of air, that would point me towards that cause. I'm then going to put them on a bag um, and I've ruled out equipment failure by taking the ventilator out of the picture. I'm going to see what they feel like to bag. Are they stiff to bag? Um, is there any tidal CO2 when I bag them, indicating that the tube is still in the trachea? And I'm going to have a look at where the tube is at the lips or nose. Is that appropriate place? Has it moved in or moved out? Um, I'm going to go down the endotracheal tube with a suction catheter to make sure that is patent. Um, if there's any difficulty with that, we'll put some saline down and we'll do a bit of saline bagging. Any concerns at all that the endotracheal tube is no longer in the trachea or that it's blocked, the tube comes out and the patient is bagged manually. Um, at the same time as this is all is happening, the patient is getting a bolus of sedation and muscle relaxant. The nasogastric tube is being aspirated and we're having a quick look over the anterior part of the chest for a pneumothorax. So the whole assessment really only takes a matter of a couple of minutes and you've ruled out all those major causes of a patient deteriorating on a ventilator. Okay, so what do you do? You've done the dupes assessment and it hasn't shown up anything. You're still struggling to oxygenate and ventilate the patient. So again, most importantly, go back to the retrieval team, discuss your findings and agree a further management plan. I think the key thing here is have I got the right diagnosis? And like when I was talking about the sepsis, I've seen so many things labelled as sepsis that aren't sepsis. There's so many things labelled as bronchiolitis that isn't actually bronchiolitis. So everything that coughs and wheezes in bronchiolitis season isn't bronchiolitis. Um, commonly congenital heart disease with um, heart failure 
is labelled the bronchiolitis. Um, so it's important that do I have a big heart on chest x-ray? What do the pulses feel like? Is there somebody locally that has the skills to do an echo to rule out a congenital heart problem? Um, if there's any doubt, um, quite often we'll start prostaglandin in these babies until they can have an echo to rule out a congenital heart problem. So that's important that the retrieval team are aware that you're struggling so this option can be considered. Um, could the baby have pulmonary hypertension secondary to the bronchiolitis or pneumonia? Um, most possibly, and that's going to require specialist intervention. Um, could this be asthma? Do they need bronchodilators? Um, pertussis is the other diagnosis that is commonly mislabeled as uh, bronchiolitis. And children who need intensive care support with pertussis, actually their mortality is reasonably high. Um, the problem in pertussis is you get such a high uh, leukocytosis um, that causes the blood to become very viscous and you get impaired flow in the pulmonary vessels. Um, and this is something that would respond to an exchange transfusion. Um, but if you, you're already going to do that if you make the correct diagnosis. So it's important that you consider this as a diagnosis. Um, so what will may the retrieval team ask you to do if you're struggling with this child in the DGH? Um, there's very little actually that you can probably do there to improve things. Um, things they may ask you to try is a trial of bronchodilators or steroids. Um, physiotherapy can be um, quite helpful and getting the local physiotherapist in to try and clear a lot of the secretions that are causing the problem. Um, the other thing, occasionally um, prone positioning will help with oxygenation. Um, but most of the interventions that a really sick kid with bronchiolitis needs are going to need to be done in the intensive care environment. Um, but keeping the retrieval team up to date will allow these to be done in a timely manner and that child's retrieval um, prioritised. For example, a kid that you worry may have um, pulmonary hypertension, the retrieval team can come and bring nitric oxide out to that child. Um, the, a child failing on conventional ventilation, often the next step we'll consider is high frequency um, oscillation ventilation. Um, and that's often something the kid needs transferred to the ICU for. But um, a local option may be, there may be a, a ventilator in the neonatal unit that you could use locally. Um, for the child and extremists that we don't think we're going to get transferred to the PICU. Um, in the PICU, other things that can be done uh, in this situation would be bronchoscopy, DNAs or surfactant administration, although there's limited evidence for um, these therapies. And for the child that you can't um, oxygenate or ventilate by um, any means, um, extracorporeal life support is always an option that needs to be considered early and making keeping the retrieval team informed of where you are um, allows that to be considered um, in a timely manner. Okay so that was a quick run through um, bronchiolitis um, I hope you found it useful and I'll try and not leave it as long before I get another episode out there. Thanks for listening.